This is Andra Norden, a student correspondent with Spark Science. Today's show was recorded at the 2018 Geohazard Symposium in Seattle, Washington, and at Western Washington University. Thank you to David Cabernus, Dr. Kathy Troost, and Dr. Robert Mitchell in order of their appearance. In this episode, we'll be featuring interviews conducted at the 2018 Geohazard Symposium with at-large attendees and one of the organizers, as well as a discussion on geologic hazards in Western Washington with a geology professor at WW. We hope you enjoy the show. Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation. You're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on. Transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecules, spontaneous combustion. Bam. Law of definite proportion gain. Ink weight, I'm every element around. So I'm here with David at the 2018 Geohazard Symposium. And so I'm curious, did you know much about geology of Western Washington before coming to this event? Did you know... Such basic fault lines. Basic, yeah. yeah. Okay. What do you think was the most important takeaway for you coming to the symposium or that you learned while you were here? How much data is available to the public. Yeah. That that there's so much data... And, and it's it's at our fingertips. It's not you don't have to be a researcher or something. Right. To access it. Right. There's public yeah, access. Yeah. How has your initial reaction to the term geologic disaster changed after coming to this symposium? Like, what do you what comes to mind now when you think about it? How ubiquitous that is. I mean, it it affects everything. I mean, everything. There is there is there isn't a, an aspect of life this is a major disaster won't affect. I agree. How has this symposium affected your view on preparedness for natural disasters? Get the boat away from the dock <laughs> as quickly as possible. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I generally park my car on the north side of the ship canal because mm-hmm. if something happens, I don't want to have to get across a bridge to get home. I can. I figure I can walk across the dam, the the, the lot at the locks or at the rails mm-hmm. to get back to the boat so I mean just uh, that was something Little we were doing all line. anyway yeah. yeah we have ditch bags on the boat mm-hmm. you know just right per, that sort of probably should be in the car as well <laughs> I guess it's one of the things that you know we got them for the boat but we don't have them for the car yeah so that's a, a, you know, just a thought having having you know, prepared this bags access is huge I think this is great I had no idea you know, if, if I think if more people knew about this, yeah. you know, information and preparedness would be better because you know you can you can gauge how much danger you're in by where you're living. With yeah, the, and you with can literally maps. look up your address. Yeah, yeah, I think this is amazing. Yeah. I didn't know about it either. Yeah, that is really it's huge. What important takeaway would you like attendees to gain at this symposium? So one is, I think, residents in this state, they all need to take it upon themselves to get informed about what the hazards are in their neighborhood Mm -hmm. and get prepared because there's no question that we will experience large earthquakes here, uh, among other types of hazards. So, and there's a great way to get informed, and that is through some of the county city and state websites Mm -hmm. they have great map your hazards kinds of 
portals that uh, you can go into, type in your address, and see what kind of hazard you have. And a lot of those same portals will give you just basic information. What to do in the event of an earthquake, how to recognize a landslide, what not to do if you live on a slope, that sort of thing. Right. So that's one of the takeaways. The other takeaway, which was pretty humbling for me today to hear, is that uh, as a result of the research the U.S. Geological Survey is doing, they have found that within sort of the Puget Lowland area, mm -hmm. as a result of all the active crustal faults that we have in the area, our earthquake risk is now known to be greater than what I even knew of yesterday. So the current thinking is that within this box, our chances are we are likely to see a, an earthquake on one of these shallow faults about every 200 years. And these are like Northridge, California. Um, earthquakes. Okay. Not like Nisqually back in 2001, that was a deep earthquake, but we're talking shallow uh, earthquakes where the ground's going to shake a lot harder. Violently. That's really humbling to me, even as a geologist. So I didn't have an earthquake kit before. I'm going to put one together now. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's yes. like, and we've got wonderful vendors here yes. with great information on what to put in your earthquake kits and one more take-home message is, you know, try to plan for two weeks of not having the typical infrastructure and amenities that we're used to having. That's what really surprised me in my engineering geology class last quarter was talking about the infrastructure that's affected in these disasters and how it really you should be worried about going two weeks without any access to anything. Yes, yeah. we've got hundreds of bridges in this in this yeah. state, especially in the Puget Lowland, and. A lot of those bridges, half of them, are not uh, have not been retrofitted, wow. and so there could be failures during these earthquakes, and that's going to affect a lot of people. Not being able to get home, uh, not being able to get to their kids, uh, to their parents, to their spouses. Yeah, yeah. it's it's just kind of a scary thing. <laughs> <laughs> Very humbling, like you said. Yes. But you said that you put this on every five years. What are some of the themes you've done in the past? So. Typically, so there's two organizations that are jointly putting this on today okay. and yesterday and tomorrow. Northwest Geological Society okay. and the Association of Environmental and Engineering Geologists. Okay. This is the first time we've done it joint and the first time we've done a public outreach event like today. Which I loved, by the way. Yes, thank you. Me too. Many of us geologists feel really passionate about sharing our yes. information. <laughs> and we want you know citizens to just really be better informed. So in the past, uh, we've, the Northwest GS has done one every five years, and it's generally about cutting-edge science. And so this is the first time we focused on geologic hazards, mm -hmm. and the cutting-edge research in geologic hazards was presented yesterday, and then some of that is also being presented today. Okay. But today we're adding in, you know, uh, the concept of what do we. How do we get prepared? What do we do in the event of a tsunami or an earthquake? Right. So. Asking those logistical questions. Yes. So yesterday we called our technical day. Right. And we had a, a similar turnout to that one that we've had of our previous two events. Mm -hmm. um, today we had no idea what to expect for a public turnout. 
it's turns out it's really hard to get the message out that you're doing this kind of thing. Right. So we contacted a lot of media outlets. We put ourselves on event calendars, etc. And it turns out most people heard about this event either through some website, um, through work, mm-hmm. or word of mouth. Okay. And not as much through media, which tells us somehow we've got to find a better way to get the word out if we do this again. And I think we will. There's so much people need to know yeah. to get ready. And I, I really believe that if, you can, if you're informed about what your risks are, then you will be more apt to get prepared for them, right? And one of the things that I've seen, I do a lot of field geologic mapping and so, and in urban areas. We have a pretty smart citizenry in Washington. Um, I'll knock on doors and ask if I can, you know, cross their property to mm-hmm. go back and look at a hillside or something. And people are pretty smart about what the earthquake risks are here. But we've got new information that increases our risk, and so we really want to try to get that information out somehow. So if anybody has suggestions for more outreach, we'd be happy to hear it. consider the most impactful geologic hazards within Washington State? Well, I think the ones that get the most attention, you know, in terms of uh, hazards are there, typically those that don't happen as much but have more devastation. Mm-hmm. So I would say earthquakes probably, yeah. because of our tectonic setting here, uh, we're, you know, we're an active earthquake region, and I think even though we haven't in our lifetimes probably experienced that many earthquakes, I think the effect of that is going to be dramatic when it does occur. So mm-hmm. in terms of both, not so much, I don't think, lives. I, th- You know, the United States is very uh, proactive on building codes and ensuring that, you know, buildings withstand a certain amount of ground shaking. So, you know, I, I think it's just going to be infrastructure that's going to be going to be uh, um, uh, a big problem. And when I'm thinking about infrastructure, I'm not thinking about just homes that people living in or in buildings, but what we consider to be the lifelines that are feeding those mm-hmm. homes and industries, for example, underground pipelines, yeah. water lines, uh, gas, electricity, our freeways. You know, if you went out on a bridge in Bellingham and counted the number of semi trucks that go under that bridge in any given day, you realize that most of our goods and food and et cetera are, are delivered to us by truck. Yeah. And you know, if there's devastation to a bridge or or a freeway where we can't get access to that, it's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So that would be, I would say, I would consider as being one of the more impactful. That said, there are a lot of more common geologic hazards that are that are constantly happening and constantly impacting people. Mm-hmm. So that could be, I, I think we're all aware of landslides. I think the Osa yeah. landslide brought a lot of attention to landslides, but those are occurring quite often, and um, especially in the winter months when it starts raining and so it's become more saturated, a little bit weaker structurally, and start failing. And, uh, 
uh, another one of those that I think commonly affect people are floods. Uh, um, as are, I mean, there's a lot of major rivers draining these cascades. Yeah. And as they sweep over these lowland landscapes, uh, you know, they're, they've been engineered and levied. And, and um, when there's severe rainstorms and these rain on snow events, we can get quite a bit of uh, rainfall that yeah. impacts a lot of people in terms of floods. So, you know, those are, I think, some of the more common ones, I would say. That's something that always really interested me when I was first, first learning about geology is just how interconnected the different hazards are. And mm -hmm. so, like, if you have a lot of rainfall, you have an earthquake happen in yes. the winter months, oh, yes. it's even worse because of right. how unstable the ground is. Right. But I think... Uh, yeah, Especially with landslides, if you have an earthquake, you know, in the winter months, not only are you getting, you know, the ground shaking that can affect, obviously, faulting and mm -hmm. infrastructure and so forth, but it could uh, create a, a lot of landslides. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. So, and that leads into how do you classify different mass wasting events? And so we have landslides, but then we also have rock falls and mm -hmm. a lot of different types that the average person doesn't really know about. Yeah, I think that... I would kind of broadly categorize them into three types. I kind of think of mass wasting as kind of shallow mass wasting events that we commonly see in these high elevations and you know where we just get these kind of thin soil failures and which sometimes can turn into debris flows because mm -hmm. they're occurring in these steep drainages and get saturated with water and deliver a lot of sediment and debris logging and slash. Those are dramatic, the debris flows. I think the other type of landslide failure in soils would be what we call these deep-seated landslides that are quite common. Um, like the Oslo landslide was a deep-seated landslide. Right. So it's this, it's the failure occurs deeper underground and kind of a curved surface, usually in these um, geologic, these glacial deposits. With the island, the landslides that you've been hearing about, the Ledgewood slide, mm -hmm. for example, a lot of those on, on Woodby Island, just because of the glacial stratigraphy or sediments there, there's a lot of these deep-seated land failures. <coughs> and here close to us, because we have the Chuckanut sandstone, are these, are these bedrock failures. Mm -hmm. So as you're driving down Chuckanut Drive, it seems like every year we have one or two failures in the winter months along Chuckanut Drive. We have failures along I-5 in the Chuckanut sandstone. <coughs> as you're driving down there, you can see the rock bolts where engineers have tried to stabilize these, and they're definitely high-risk areas. And they're occurring all over Washington State uh, where there's outcrops of, you know, we call them kind of transportation corridors, whether there be highways or freeways or railroads or even gas pipeline corridors when you have to, when you have to carve into these bedrock surfaces, um, uh, sometimes leave them unstable and, and obviously it require a lot of maintenance and, and engineering to keep them from right. failing. So, so those are the three classes. Okay. And for a road like Chuckanut that was built a really long time ago, what, a hundred years ago? I would say I think it is. I think there's, I, I can't say for sure, but I think it was one of the original highways that connected us with uh, yeah. Seattle. So, so is there a lot more known now about breaking into bedrock surfaces like that? I think there is, yes. I mean, it's, you know, that said though, I mean, they're, they're engineers, uh, I mean, mining has existed right. for a long time. And mining engineers 
there's probably some of the original engineers in terms of history in this country. I mean, most engineering institutes, like where I got my engineering degree was at Michigan Tech started, started out as a mining engineering. Colorado mm -hmm. School of Mines started right. out as a mining engineer. New Mexico Tech, uh, Colorado, or um, all these kind of technical engineering schools started out as mining engineering schools. So I think they knew a fair amount about rock failures and um, probably how to somewhat mitigate those, but because there were so few roads put in at that time, yeah. there's, you know, we have such a high density of roads now. I mean, they're just everywhere. So we're just imposing more on those types of landscapes. So, right. Yeah. That's interesting. And so you touched on this a little bit already, but could you speak to why in Washington State our high amount of rainfall, how exactly it affects landslides mm -hmm. and why we're so at risk for it here? Well, the, it turns out that the strength of these unconsolidated materials like glacial deposits that form some of our sea cliffs and other regions, the strength of those are by essentially by the by grain to grain contact. So the 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 more grain to grain contact you have, the stronger they will resist those gravitational forces that are trying to pull them down. <coughs> Water that gets infiltrates into those pore spaces uh, degrades that grain to grain contact. So you're essentially kind of pushing those grains apart and uh, therefore there's less frictional resistance to those and you get more failures because mm -hmm. of that. So you'll note that most of our landslides in these unconsolidated deposits occur during the rainiest months of the year. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that was, you know, that was documented with the Oso landslide. It was one of the rainiest months of March prior to that, and um, hence it contributes as part of that failure. And that's why trees are important on these landscapes, because they pull a lot of water out of those soils and keep them somewhat drier. The roots offer structural integrity, as well as the roots pull water out of the soils that keep them drier, that and, you know, that keeps the green to green contact. So if you go in a, a hill slope when a, and log that hill slope, not only are you uh, removing that kind of root structure that holds those soils in place, you're allowing those soils to get more saturated and hence there's always gonna be more failures mm -hmm. as a result of that. That's something, uh, I know when I hike, sometimes I think about those like basic overarching principles of like you notice it when you're walking through and there's a lot of tree cover and you're just not getting rained on mm -hmm. very much if at all mm -hmm. and th that principle of how it helps landslides but also when you're on a bank and just a little small bit falls off from being so saturated mm -hmm. it's those things that you notice that are like these bigger mm -hmm. widespread this is what hap is happening in these really big landslides that's right i think that's kind of fun to go out and notice that. Mm -hmm. And so you've done research on watersheds in Whatcom County and mm -hmm. the Nooksack River specifically. Mm -hmm. And so how does your research relate to forecasting events like this? Well, just, you know, one of the things that scientists are projecting for the future in terms of there's all kinds of kind of, of models that they're, they use to predict what that climate's going to look like in the future, not only in terms of temperatures, but maybe what the precipitation events look like. And these basins in the Cascades are what we call transient basins, meaning that they're very sensitive to whether it's going to be rainy or snowing. 
experience that on Mount Baker. Go skiing on Mount Baker. It could be raining one weekend and storming the next. So we're right at that kind of threshold where the temperature regime could be the rain or snow. Right now, it's in a situation where we're developing a fair amount of snowpack in the winter months. That snowpack buffers the rainfall on the landscape. So what we've been seeing as time marches on and climate gets warmer, that that snow line is going to be increasing in elevation, meaning it's Mount Baker ski area could be getting a lot more rain than snow in the future. And that holds true for the landscapes you know, below that. Given my previous statement about what's detrimental to these hill slopes is infiltrating water, if you have more landscape that's going to receive more rainfall now rather than snow, there's going to be a higher risk of more saturated sediments and more mass wasting events, higher sediment in streams. And the more sediment you put into streams, not only is that detrimental to salmon yeah. and salmon habitat, is detrimental to flooding events because it starts building up and aggrading in those stream channels and the river channel rises, meaning that it can hold less water and you're going to get more flooding events. And um, scientists also predict that these rainfall events could be more dramatic, not dramatic in the sense of, of just higher intensities, longer duration. So we think of these, formally we call them uh, Pineapple Expresses, now we're calling them atmospheric rivers that will deliver these huge volumes of rainfall over the period of two or three days. Some believe they're going to occur more often. Mm. It's hard to predict, I think, but if, if they do occur more often and, and if those rainfalls are, if that rainfall is following, falling on landscapes that are now not protected by snow, there's going to be more risk of mass wasting and landslides. So riparian zones along the river are going to be well, they're more important? They're going to be important in part for stream temperatures too. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we've been looking at in our modeling is, well, if, if air temperatures are going to be warmer, there's going to be less snowpack, and right now snow melt is responsible for buffering those stream temperatures in the spring yeah. and summer as is glacier melts. And if we have less snowpack in the future, we have, in, because of warmer temperatures, we're gonna have warmer stream temperatures, not only because they're not, there's less That's snow, nice. there's <laughs> less snow melts, but there's also warmer air temperatures that are warming those streams. So uh, one so of the risks that we're facing yeah. here is if we have Salmon are already threatened, yeah. and if we have higher sedimentation in the streams and warmer stream temperatures, they're gonna, it's going to be a problem. So it's providing like shade to the stream. Is that what the, the riparian? The yes, the riparian buffers do. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they provide shade to keep the streams cooler. Okay. Wow. But groundwater also serves as keeping those stream temperatures cooler as well. So there's a chance that you know if we we do have more rainfall and there is higher water levels in the aquifer systems that that too could buffer those stream temperatures. So, so, so that, could be a, that could be a positive, <laughs> but we're not sure how much of an influence that is. Wow. <clears throat> um, and so you talked about Oso landslide a little bit. Mm -hmm. Why was that such an overwhelming loss in terms of gaps in information between the scientific community and housing developers in that area, but also the public. Yeah, I think the, you know, I think even now, I mean, um, 
you know, there were geologic studies mm -hmm. in that valley that identified the risk. I think what was learned from that was, you know, what was unique about that landslide was how far it ran out. What we mean by a run out is as it fails, how much landscape does it inundate below it? Okay. And uh, it inundated a lot of landscape more than anybody would have anticipated. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, because of the how saturated it was, and it potentially could have liquefied onto that floodplain of the Siliguamish that allowed it to essentially kind of hydroplane, if you wish, across that that river valley. So, I mean, it was, I think there was, you know, there's always this balance between policy and development, and you know, those and natural systems are hard to nail down. I think they've. The government learned a lot from that, and they've made strides. Uh, the state uh, provided resources to the DNR to, to do more landslide mapping, to do more analysis of the landscape with the LIDAR, and, and I think there's a lot more attention placed on that, but it sometimes takes, unfortunately, the ramifications of one of those big disasters for things to happen. <clears throat> Do you think we need more geologists and policy? Oh yes, you know, and, and I, you know, I think it's there's always this, uh, um, you know, I think every county should have geologists. I think most are kind of aware of these natural hazards, but it, it's you know, all this requires resources, right? Yeah. And, and many times the state is strapped and doesn't want to raise taxes, and yeah. you know, so those are risks you face. When that, when uh, you're not willing to provide those kinds of services and 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 have the proper, I think one of the things that's helped these the the public quite a bit though is the fact that we have a license. Geologists are licensed in Washington State, so the whole idea of licensure is for the protection of people property. Okay. And um, uh, I think from the this. You know, I've been on the licensing board for eight years. My term is just finishing as of today. Oh. <laughs> it's really <laughs> this week anyway. So I spent eight years on the licensing board and and saw firsthand, uh, you know, complaints and so forth about, you know, the need for having licensure, having professionals out there and watchdog service out there making sure that geologists are making proper decisions about people's property and risk levels. So... So it, I think the licensing has helped quite a bit in Washington State. Wow. And so off the top of your head, do you know of resources online for people? Like what website should they be going to if they want to read about these risks? Or the not? first place I would go is to Washington DNR. Okay. They have a really good uh, um, section on hazards and in, in how to prepare for hazards. They direct you to the Washington Department of Emergency Management which I highly recommend visiting. So if you go to the DNR site, they will point you to the emergency management site, which you know used to be preparing for a three-day you know event, but now they're they're coaching people on how to prepare for two weeks. You know how much water to have, what food supplies, yeah. other resources to for your family for two weeks, and uh, which makes sense to me because it's you know if we again if we had a major earthquake here in Bellingham and our services are cut off. Most of the attention is going to be placed on huge metropolitan areas like Seattle, right. and it's going to be a while before Bellingham might get some attention. Yeah. So to, to be prepared for that is important. 
So the two sites, again, I, I'll echo to visit are Washington DNR. They're, I mean, DNR courses, force practices, and other uh, elements fit the, the Earth Science Division, and then they have a section there on geologic hazards. More information about how to, you know, what they are and um, how to prepare for them. There's a lot that goes into it, too. I mean, just yeah. sitting down and taking a day to plan that out is mm -hmm. really, really useful. And so what do you think are little things that people should be doing to prepare for geologic hazards on a local level? Like if they were to have a landslide that blocked off a road or something. You know, just be aware power. about when you're buying a house or where you're renting or where you might be doing a hike, what kinds mm -hmm. of potential risks might be involved with that. So that's why it's important to have a little bit of geologic prowess, I think, um, I think everybody should be required to take Geology 101 <laughs> just to get enough of a sense to uh, know what is, uh, what are the risks out there, what are the geologic yeah. hazards, and many of those are easy to avoid. You yeah. know, in terms of, I mean, it's it's like when you're hiking in the Cascades, you know how to avoid a crevasse or something. You know, just yeah. you know what river valleys might be more sensitive, whether it be, uh, you know, don't go. I wouldn't go. Like, I'm a big road cyclist, and I typically avoid chucking a drive, you know, just after a big rain event in the winter. So, yeah. you know, it's like, those are the types of things that I think are common sense to be aware of, but maybe common sense to us, but not to everybody else who right. haven't had the opportunity to take Geology 101. So I guess my advice would be, if you haven't had that opportunity or can't have that opportunity, afford the time to visit DNR website. There's a lot of educational materials on okay. that. Thanks for listening to Spark Science. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Our producer is Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andra Norton. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Blackalicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap, you think iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.